Hey, this is Lee Snow. I'm the preacher of Orange Springs Road Church of Christ, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for downloading today. I hope it inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you a perspective to see what God wants to do in your life. And I hope it challenges you to a faithful tomorrow. All right, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. <clears throat> Acts 6 is, um, I'm almost positive, unless, unless I'm overlooking something. Acts 6 is the shortest chapter in uh, the book of Acts. It's probably one of the shorter chapters in all of the writings of Luke. Um, but Acts 6 and 7 is going to be our focus this afternoon. Um, we're going to change up the schedule a little bit and do our scripture reading this afternoon. But what I wanted to do over the next few months is read some of the longer sermons that have been, that have been recorded in the book of Acts. Um, and uh, since the, the surrounding chapters are important for, for someone to understand what's going on with those sermons... That's why we're going to start in Acts chapter 6 this afternoon. So when we find Acts 6, the church has been established in Acts chapter 2, of course. 3,000 people were saved then, at least 3,000 men. Then you have Acts chapter 3, another 3,000 people have been saved. So let's just take the numbers that are specifically said and not try to conjecture any women or maybe uh, younger men, younger children that... um, are baptized, you know. I mean, they didn't start counting men until, until the age of, of warfare. So let's just take the numbers that are accounted. And you have somewhere, by the, by the beginning of chapter 6, you have somewhere north of 7,000 Christians. We, try, we, we often think that the church in the book of Acts is some small group, but reasonable estimates say that there are somewhere around 100,000 Christians at the end of the book of Acts. So this is not a small group. I mean, the Roman Empire was a very big empire. It's, it's, it's spacious when it comes to, to geography, but for, for there to be a group of 100,000 people, that's, that's more than the number of Pharisees at the end of the book of Acts. So you have... You have a large population group in, that is beginning to, to take hold in the Roman world, especially when it comes to chapter 6. Because in chapter 6, the church faces its first internal crisis. They've had crises, crises before in that they've been arrested a couple times in you know, chapter 3 and 4. And chapter 5, you have some crisis with with one couple who really just wants to be patted on the back, and so they, they, they lie, and they face the consequences for that. But Acts chapter 6 is the first real church fight. This is the first one where Christians are upset, at least the first one we have recorded. Christians are upset with other Christians. And that never happens today, right? You never have Christians that ever get upset with other Christians. You never... You know, uh, I've told you the story about the church that, that actually does meet with two different color carpets and pews, but it happens on a regular basis. But in Acts chapter 6, the interesting thing is that 
Well, let's just read it. Acts 6, verse number 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the Hellenists and the Hebrews. We, we talked about that this past um, Wednesday. But the Hellenists are Jewish Christians who have embraced the Greek culture. Okay? And the Hebrews are Jewish Christians who have not embraced the Greek culture. They're the ones that are from, uh, traditionally from, Jerusalem and the surrounding area. But you remember in Acts 2, there's thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that go to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. And thousands of those people are converted to Jesus Christ. And so you have these people from all walks of the earth, all different places all over the earth that have come together in Jerusalem And now they're followers of Jesus. And so you have different backgrounds. You have Jews that didn't grow up in Jerusalem, but they're sticking around Jerusalem because, well, now they're part of this new church. They're part of this new movement. They're following Jesus, and they want to be close to each other. They want to be close to their their fellow Christians. To the point that in Acts 2, at the end of Acts 2, you have them meeting together daily from house to house, going from Christian's house to Christian's house to Christian's house, spending time together studying, spending time together eating, spending time together worshiping and so forth. And so they're still here. And so now you have this issue because, well, the Hellenists feel like they're from elsewhere. They don't feel like they're part of the church. I mean, yeah, yeah, they feel like they're loved, but... They feel kind of isolated. They, they feel like they're welcome, but they also feel like they're not part of the group, not part of the in crowd. And then they start having these, this realization that maybe, maybe our widows are not being taken care of the same way as the widows who grew up around here. And so verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now does that mean that well, does that mean that it's wrong to serve tables? No, absolutely not. It's just these men have different jobs. These 12 apostles, nowhere in the Great Commission is Jesus, told, is Jesus recorded as telling the disciples, the apostles, I want you to go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, make sure that they're fed. It's not, it's not there. Their job is to preach. And so they say, it's not good that we should serve tables, that we should neglect the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, verse 3, Brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So then they start delegating. Verse number 5, And when they had pl- said what, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid hands on them. They show that these men are the ones that are going to do this job. Verse number 7, the word of the Lord continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and great many priests became obedient to the faith. Now, you have these men, Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. 
These men are now in charge of the feeding of the people. And so that's their only job. That's the only thing they ever do, right? No. That's not, that's not the only job. Verse number 8 of chapter 6. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. But I thought Stephen's job was to feed the widows. Well, it is, but he's still doing the job of teaching people about Jesus Christ as well. Verse 9. Some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom of the Spirit with which he was speaking, when they secretly instigated men, who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous things against Moses and God. Remember a few weeks ago, I said, well, we talked about the verse where essentially Paul says, if people are going to talk bad about you, you need to make sure that they have to lie. That sounds strange, right? But their, their reputation was so strong as Christians. People, people cared about them so much, and they cared about other people so much, that the only way that these people could have anyone upset with them was to start speaking lies. Verse number 11, they secretly instigated men who lied and said, we have heard them speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and scribes, and they came upon them and seized him, and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses, who said, this man never, never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Was that true? Well, yeah, it is true. It is true that Stephen was preaching that Jesus was going to destroy the temple and that he was going to change the things that Moses had given to them. It was absolutely true. The catch is, the temple that he was talking about was his body, not the physical temple. Um, There's only very few instances where Jesus had been recorded as talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that would happen somewhere in the neighborhood of 45 to 50 years later. So the lie that they came up with about Stephen was just to take what he said and put just enough twist on it that it puts it in a different category. How many, how many false ideas about Scripture have come simply because someone takes something that is absolutely true, takes it out of context, spends it just enough, maybe not even knowing so, spends it just enough that it turns into something completely different. Stephen's preaching that Jesus would destroy the temple and then he, came, he brought about a change from, the, from Moses to the Christian age. That's true, 100% true. We have heard him, we, we've heard him a bunch and all he ever talks about is that Jesus is going to destroy the temple and that he, they don't, he doesn't like the Old Testament. So, verse number 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and scribes. They came to him and seized him. This man never ceases to speak words against the Holy Spirit and the law. And we heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and the, change the customs. Verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like that of an angel. I have no idea what Stephen's face looked like. 
There's conjecture that Stephen's face was shining and that somehow they realized that there was something special going on. Maybe they looked at him and realized that he wasn't making this up. Have you ever... Have you ever talked to a child who is terrified and about something and you realize that they're not making this up, something really did happen, they're really scared about something? I'll give you a quick story. When I was growing up, we had a man in our neighborhood who was a little creepy. Wasn't that creepy, but he was a little creepy. And one day I was sitting in my living room And I saw this man walk into our front yard and just stand there. I don't think he was dangerous or anything like that. He just stood there. But I got scared. And I ran and told my mom. And she said, no, you're just, you don't know what you're talking about. And I said, no, it really did happen. I don't know what he was doing. I was like nine. I don't know what he was doing, but I was terrified. And she realized that I was terrified. Maybe that's what, she, what they're talking about when they say that his face was like that of an angel. Maybe the people saw that what he's talking about, he's seen something. He's, this is real to him. This isn't, he's not making this up. He's not, he's not, maybe he's misunderstood. Maybe he's misunderstanding what's going on, but he knows what he's seen. Maybe that's it. I, I don't know. But anyways, they pull him in front of this council the Sanhedrin, in the temple, and they realize that something is different about Stephen. So verse number one of chapter seven. And the high priest said, these things so. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. This is now his sermon starts, okay? This is one of the longer sermons that's recorded in the book of Acts, which is why I wanted to, to do it first. But, and it's also somewhat overlooked most of the time. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you now are living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others and would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge this nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac. And circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him, rescued him out of the afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him a ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could not find food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, He sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all, 
Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they, carried, and they were carried back to Shechem, laid in a tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So he's telling this history. But notice, he's, not, he, he's skipping over large tracts of Scripture, right? There's nothing in there about Potiphar's wife. There's nothing in there about Joseph being arrested. There's nothing in there about Abraham's life. And, and he's just hitting the high points. Now, I think once we get to the end, you'll see why he's hitting the high points. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Verse 9, verse 17. But... As the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Joseph, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed... Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and deeds. Now, why does Stephen say that Moses was mighty in his words? But Moses said, I'm not mighty in my words. I'm not an eloquent speaker, God. You can't send me into Egypt, God. I'm not an eloquent speaker. They're not going to listen to me. Moses was making excuses. Anyways, chapter six or 7, verse 23. He was 40 years old. It came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wrong, he defended, an, the, defended the oppressed man and revenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. Now, pause for just a second. We're 31 verses in to the sermon that Stephen preached. And there's no application yet. Just notice that. Most of the sermons that are recorded in the book of Acts, there's no application until the very, very end. Okay? Verse 31. When Moses saw it, uh, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses trembled, did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals for the feet, uh, from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I am, have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and the Red Sea and wilderness for 40 years. This was the Moses 
who said to the Israelites, God will raise you up as a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers. Receiving, or he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they returned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make, us, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Moses is gone, and the people of Israel don't turn back literally, but Stephen says that they turned back in their hearts to Egypt. And they made a calf, verse 42, but God turned away and gave them to cover and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphon. Moloch was the god that he was pictured as, as, a, as a man with his arms outstretched, and it was a great and... The way you offered sacrifices to him was to offer your own offspring. And that grate was used much like um, the grate on one of your barbecue grills. The images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. Just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked for a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What, peace, what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So there's the first instance of any kind of application. They've said, you have said that Jesus is going to destroy the temple. And it takes Stephen 49 verses to get to where he says, who cares if Jesus destroys the temple? This temple was built by Solomon, not by God. And it was supposed to be built by David, but David couldn't do it because he wasn't, well... He was a man of blood, and God didn't want a man of blood to build his temple, and so his son did it. But this thing's built by Solomon. It's not built by God. I wish I could say that to some people that think that their buildings, their church buildings, are something more than just wood and sticks and drywall. It's built by a guy in the 70s, most likely. Given the American buildings in church buildings, most of them are built in the 70s and 80s. Built by a guy in the 70s. It's not built by God. God doesn't dwell in the houses made with hands. Verse 51. Now, this is the part where uh, I have to hand it to the Jews. I would probably be a little upset too. But it doesn't justify what they do. But verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist, resist the Holy Spirit. That'd make you pretty upset, wouldn't it? Stephen just tells the whole history of the people of Israel 
And he says, you love this building so much, you're, you think you're following God, but you're stiff-necked. Your hearts are uncircumcised. Maybe your bodies are, but your hearts are uncircumcised. You resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Your translation may say, they gnashed on him with their teeth. And when I read that a long time ago, I thought that these people ran up to Stephen and bit him and gnashed on him with their teeth. It just means they're so mad, they're grinding their teeth. They're, they're trying to hold themselves back. But now Stephen has said a couple things. One, you're stiff-necked and uncircumcised. You hate God. You hate the Holy Spirit. You're just like your father's who didn't listen to God. I don't know about y'all, but whenever I have been told, you're just like your father, I didn't, I didn't take that very kindly. Anyways, anyways. They gnash on him with their teeth, or they grind their teeth at him, verse 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling into his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when, they had, when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution in the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house to house, house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So that's why... Now, Acts chapter 6, the Hellenists and the Hebrews get upset. They've been together for too long. They're too, much, they're too different. They start backbiting one another. The apostles fix it. They, they settle the problem down. And then, can you just imagine, can you just imagine being a Christian in Acts 6, 7, and 8? You hear of this church fight. I mean, all the Christians are still in Jerusalem. So you hear of this church fight. You see the apostles fix it. A man stands up who is, who is a, an amazing, amazing Christian. He starts fixing the problem along with the other men who are chosen to fix it. And then that man gets killed because he preached a sermon. He got, he got questioned one too many times. And Stephen, Stephen is not one to mince his words. He's one that he's going to tell it like it is. And he tells it like it is. You're stiff-necked. You're uncircumcised. You don't love God. You don't love the Holy Spirit. All you want to do is protect this building when this building isn't important. And so Stephen gets murdered. And now you're kind of back to square one. But not even that. Now Saul has seen what he has the capability to do. 
And so he starts doing that everywhere he possibly can. So now you have to run for your life. It's like you have a little church fight. You fix it. Everything's good. You know, it's normal. Back to normal. We're taking care of people. We're loving on each other. Stephen dies, and all of a sudden, your, your entire world is flipped upside down again. These poor Christians have not been able to rest since they came to Pentecost. If there's one thing that's going to turn them back, it's the fact that they come to Pentecost, and then they, they hear about Jesus, they start following him, and all of a sudden, everything bad starts happening. People are getting arrested. People are getting killed. Saul is going to come to our house and arrest us and put us in prison. And then we're probably going to get killed. It's like I became a Christian and now my entire world is horrible. Just goes to show you. I mean, I know I say it pretty regularly, but being a Christian is not easy. It's not always fun and, and rainbows and sunshine. In fact, the majority of the time it's not. Because you see things that... No one should ever have to see. You hear about things that no one should ever have to hear about. We have it pretty good in our culture. But we know brethren in this world that don't have it as good as we do. And they're terrified to come to services. And they're terrified to even tell... We, have, we, can, have, we can have a class where we can teach each other about how to teach people about Jesus Christ... And we can put it on, we can blast it on social media and make it a public thing and invite people from all over the city. And they can't tell somebody that even that they're a Christian. Not even just have a Bible study. They can't tell anyone they're a Christian. Just, just interesting to put yourselves in their shoes in, in Acts 8. And then think about the Christians on this world that, that are doing the same thing. They're terrified. They run for their lives. They and, and, you know, the best thing that could have happened to the church at that point was exactly what did happen. Even though it looks negative, now, at the end of Acts 7, the beginning of chapter 8, the church is now all over the world again. It, all these people came to Jerusalem, were converted, they run for their lives, but the, the good thing that results in them running from their lives is the fact that now there are Christians spread all over the world. And then later on, when Saul is converted, he's going to be able to go to those people and strengthen them and encourage them. So that is the sermon of Stephen. We're going to be reading a couple of those over the next few months throughout the book of Acts during our scripture reading times. So um, we want to offer the invitation if there's anyone this afternoon that needs to repent of sins or, off, or become a Christian for the, for the first time or be baptized for the first time rather. Let me say this. Um we live in a world that is very, it's, it's easy to be a Christian. It's easy. I mean, sure, people may not like us that much. We may not get invited to things very often. But it's relatively easy to be a Christian. Those people, like we talked about last week, those people are willing to die for what they believe. And sure, we're willing to, to do that too if it comes to it, but Chances are it will never come to it. But we still need to have that same level of devotion. That's the hard part. It's hard to have their level of devotion when you don't face their level of persecution. Our persecution, quote unquote, is somebody unfriends us on Facebook because we shared an article or something. That's not persecution. That's, that's 
making it easy on yourself, I guess. That's not persecution. It's hard to have their level of devotion without their level of persecution. But we have to fight to, to have it. And so that's why we offer the invitation. It's just as much for non-Christians to become Christians through baptism as it is for Christians to get that level of devotion. And so if you're a Christian and you need to repent of sins, maybe you just need encouragement so that you can have um, the kind of heart that those early Christians did. I, I like to think that if I was ever arrested for preaching the gospel, I would stand up and preach a sermon like Stephen did. I don't know the viability of that hope. But I like to think I would. I might put my foot in my mouth a lot sooner than he did. I don't know. We have to have that level of devotion. So if you need to repent of sins or you need to, if you're subject to invitation at all, we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement for you.